Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Hi everyone and welcome back to Red Room. Uh, This is this month's off script hot take which is a corner of the internet uh, anywhere from half an hour to an hour or however long I like where I take a couple topics that have been on my mind this month and discuss them in a very relaxed non-scripted way and you know these are not ideas that I'm saying are you know my finite take but they're just my hot take of the moment of a couple of things that I've been thinking of last month I covered euphoria we spoke about the kind of two uh, main relationships that really I related to and it hit home for me um that being Rue and Jules and then Cassie and Maddie um because I was just bad into euphoria last month like I think a lot of people were so uh go listen to that if you'd like um, just a reminder to rate us five stars and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. If you're listening on Patreon, hello. Um, all my patrons get all of the public episodes of Red Room a day early. And also, just to let you know, there is a new episode this week coming on Thursday over on Patreon. So instead of our Wednesday upload, we're doing a Thursday upload this week um, because this episode is coming out on Tuesday over there. And this week... We are covering the Titanic conspiracy, which I'm so, so, so excited to cover. Like, I just, I mean, the Titanic, if you are my age or in and around my age, plus or minus a few years, I think we all had a bit of a Titanic obsession um, because of the movie, obviously. But I don't know, there's just something about the Titanic uh, that calls my name, like to the point where when I was a young child, I used to be like, did I die on the Titanic? Like I was one of those kids, but like without any memories, you know, I just kind of wished I did. And I was like, always like asking my parents, did we have any like relatives who died in the Titanic? Like I was obsessed with like, I don't know, latching onto that trauma for some reason. But we're going to be discussing um, the many conspiracies that are connected to the Titanic. And they're not even like as like airy fairy conspiracy as some conspiracy theories are. They're very like, you know, to do with wealth and power, um, the riches of the time. I'm sure there's some that are a little bit more paranormal and, you know, I'll touch on them as well. But that's coming out tomorrow. So if you guys want, obviously you can go subscribe over on Patreon. Six euro a month and you'll get six episodes including the two freebies plus a live stream plus other shit um, and soon 
you will be able to get exclusive Red Room merch, which I'm working away on at the moment. So this month, oh, I've been dying, dying, dying to talk about this. Guys, if you haven't watched the Andy Warhol Diaries on Netflix, fucking get your arse over there and watch it now. It's so good. I'm a huge Andy Warhol fan, always have been, right? So my earliest memory of Andy Warhol, and I spoke about this on the podcast, oh no, on my vlog this week, excuse me. I spoke about how Marilyn Monroe and her death was kind of the first rabbit hole that I fell into. And I was always like just so obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, obviously I know a lot of people are, um, but I just had this like mad obsession with her from a very young child. And the reason being is that in primary school, we went to Emma, uh, so the Irish Museum of Modern Art, uh, to an Andy Warhol exhibition when I was pretty young. Like, I remember being young, like, mm, I don't know, maybe eight, possibly younger, but I'm maybe, you know, presuming I was younger just because I knew I was a child. But I remember going there and we were being walked around by like the, um, one of the people who worked at the museum or whatever, right? And they're talking us through the soup can and they're talking us through all of these different pieces of art and everything. And I remember like we all sat down on the uh, on the ground and I think it was um, one of his boxes exhibitions, if you know the ones I'm talking about. I think they were like Campbell's or Brillo um, or possibly both. But I just remember a load of boxes being there. And the I don't think this one of the screen prints of Marilyn Monroe was there. Like I don't think it was there, but I do remember the person bringing it up and talking about Marilyn Monroe. It must have been there. Sorry, it must have been there because I remember seeing her and that's what was probably the first awareness I had of Marilyn Monroe and what she looked like. And he was like, and does anyone know how Marilyn Monroe died? And I was like, no, I didn't, I don't think I even knew she died. I barely even knew she lived up until this second. And loads of people in my class were like, suicide, suicide. And I was like, suicide. And I had no fucking idea what suicide meant like I was like huh and you know when you're that young and you just want to be accepted by your peers and you just don't want to look like well I was always like this in school I was always afraid to ask questions like constantly especially in primary school and I'd always go home and just like find out the answer myself in my own time rather than like put myself out on the line in class again that's probably a sentence from my therapist and I went home to my parents and I was like what does suicide mean and I'm sure they were like what the fuck are you learning in school but I was like I told them about Marilyn Monroe and they were like oh it means that she uh, took her own life or like killed herself Um, and I remember just being like whoa what the fuck like that's something that people do like it blew my mind and I'm sure that lodged some sort of like I don't know, moment in my mind of awareness as a child and kind of seeing like the grittiness of reality. And obviously, I think as a kid, I was just drawn to Andy Warhol's art because it's so colourful. And I think that's one reason why I personally think Andy Warhol's art is just so likeable, really, to put it in very simple terms. Like, I think at any age, you can be drawn to a lot of it. Obviously, there's some of his work that's a little bit more conceptual or some that's, you know, if you've ever seen any of his movies, like they're wild, but like you could technically bring a kid to an Andy Warhol exhibition and they'd like it just for the colours. Whereas like a couple, I'm thinking maybe a year or two later, my mom and brought me to a Francis Bacon exhibition and I was just like what in the fuck I remember being terrified like absolutely terrified <laughs> um but 
Andy Warhol, The Diary of Andy Warhol on Netflix is amazing, guys. So Andy Warhol wrote a diary famously, and he actually didn't write it. He uh, would ring his friend every single day at the end of the day and tell her everything about his day, including like all of the money he spent, how much everything cost. And she uh, wrote it down like he would dictate it to her and she would type it up, basically. And when he died, she claims and it has been a bit of controversy as far as I know. She claims that he was cool with her publishing it. Um, how like I mean, they had a really long relationship right they like were on the phone to each other every single motherfucking day and it's fascinating because Andy Warhol is someone who had such mystique around him and we're going to get into that a little later but this tv show is based around those diaries and it's kind of looking it's a six-part uh, documentary I believe Ryan Murphy is behind it uh who you know obviously is a huge uh gay rights activist and you know especially for like queer culture he really pushes that uh into the mainstream which is one reason why i love ryan murphy i think he has such a great he's an amazing aesthetic amongst other things and the documentary really i mean it humanizes him which in one hand i was afraid of because warhol to me the beauty of him is almost like he's not human like and i don't mean that in a negative sense i mean it in this he's almost this like ethereal being to me where He's like David Bowie in that way. Like, I just can't put my finger on him and that's no one really ever could. It's also post-Factory era, which, you know, I was talking to Devin about it, my friend who's also a huge Warhol fan. And he was like, oh, I don't know. It's like post-Factory. And I was like, I know, because the Factory era obviously was like so iconic, right? Um, You know, the heyday of the Factory, Edie Sedgwick, when he all the rock and roll stars coming in, the Velvet Underground are under his management and obviously famously Valerie Solaris shot him in 1968 in his factory. To be honest, it really made the show for me because it's about him dealing with that, dealing with like the actual like level of fame he has, dealing with kind of being a polarising figure. Um, So although it humanises him, it almost... It leaves you with more questions, which is just so Warholian in and of itself. Um, I'm going to read you an excerpt of the diary. I actually just opened two random pages and found two uh, two excerpts. I just think are amazing. He is so interesting. Like the book itself is huge, but it's one of those, uh, you know, it's a diary. So you can kind of open it up wherever and just read away. Tuesday, February 13th, 1979. Truman thinks interviews should become more like the original Vanity Fair. He was telling Bridget lots of ideas for interviews, saying he wanted to have regular Monday morning editorial meetings of the staff, but meetings that like are just a big waste of time. Other magazines do it that way, but everyone at interviews sort of just does their own job. Other magazines schedule those big, long meetings, and that's when all these people's ideas about themselves and their positions come out. The power things. The meetings just bring out whether people think they're better or you're better. Like, how modern is that? For 1979, um, obviously, if you don't know, Andy Warhol founded Interview Magazine. And that's what he's talking about. Truman Capote wanted to make it more like a, a typical editorial fashion magazine. And he just pushed against that. And, you know, saying that meetings are just all ego feeders. I just think that's such a progressive idea and a progressive way of working and really just shows how Andy Warhol's mind works. Saturday, May 30th, 1981. I had a long philosophy talk with Bridget and we both decided that maybe time had passed us by. When I saw myself in those home movies we took on the Cape last weekend, I hated myself so much. 
Every simple thing I do looks strange. I have such a strange walk and a strange look. If I could have only been a peculiar comic in the movies, I would have looked like a puppet, but it's too late. What's wrong with me? I look at Vincent and Shelley and they look normal. And I don't look good in cowboy boots anymore, I don't think. I think I'll get sneakers. I'll have Jay take me over to Paragon to get some. The last excerpt there that I read, you know, it's so sad and it's something of the documentary that it just always makes my heart bleed for Andy Warhol. He had such a horrible view of himself. And I think sometimes like seeing other people write or think aloud negative things about themselves, even though we all do it or I think we all do anyway, um, say horrible things about how we look or how we think or our careers or our love life or our social life. We put ourselves down a lot, right? But it's interesting when you see someone like Warhol who, you know, really seems so confident at times until you really look into his, the self-deprecating humour. He's kind of the the embodiment of that self-deprecating humour being a mask and being a defence mechanism. And Warhol although saw himself as so disgusting and had such low self-esteem, he was also a lover of beauty. And it was his love of beauty that, it's funny, he he made sure to surround himself with beautiful things, right? And therefore he created a culture of beauty. What a strange self-fulfilling prophecy. He was born, if you don't know, um, with a neurological disorder called... Sydenham, Korea. Now I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And apparently, this is just a strange red room overlap. It's also known as St. Vitus's Dance, which we did a whole episode on uh, about the dancing plague. Crazy, but it's all about involuntary movements, like physical movements. He also uh, lost his pigment in his skin at around age eight, which I'm presuming must be from like vitiligo or something similar. He had cystic acne growing up and he began balding uh, quite young as well, uh, which is why he wore those white wigs as he was older, which he's kind of like famous for now, I guess. And, you know, he was bullied in school. He (laughs) was not given a nice time. Um, And I think it's strange to see someone. It's it's kind of that like weird dichotomy or juxtaposition uh, that always lived in Warhol's life where he did not see himself as beautiful or worthy. But he also had this insane confidence and self-worth in a way where he would constantly surround himself by other beauties, as he would call them. He would call everyone a beauty. And I think that's a really interesting way to live. A lot of the time we think of someone who is insecure or think of someone who um, doesn't see themselves as worthy as not surrounding themselves with people who they would feel, you know, uh, as like better than them looks wise. But he kind of had this idea of surrounding himself with these like beautiful, famous, incredible people would make him that. And it did. Another quote of his, uh, and it was in the documentary is, I believe in low lights and trick mirrors. A person is entitled to the lighting that they need. At one time, the way my nose looked really bothered me. It's always red and I decided that I wanted to have it sanded. When I went to see the doctor and I think that he thought he'd humour me, so he sanded it and when I walked out of St. Luke's Hospital, it was the same underneath but had a bandage on it. If I didn't want to look good so bad, I would want to look plain. 
that would be my next choice. Which, you know, I always take some of his words with a pinch of salt because I don't think he would want to look plain. I think Andy Warhol was a man of extremes and aesthetics. And, you know, his strange looks, because he was a strange and a very unique looking man, that in contrast to all these beautiful, hyper beautiful celebrities, right? Like he was surrounding himself with the creme de la creme. That was what was intriguing about him. This normal guy, but wearing this strange wig. Like there was just so many juxtapositions within him and how he lived his life. Um, Even the fact that he was known to be this orthodox, strict Catholic but was a gay man, but also never admitted to being gay and would put out that he was asexual um, for probably multiple reasons. Probably, A, didn't want to say that he was gay in the 70s or in the 80s even, because uh, it was still, obviously, wasn't accepted. But also because he liked the mystery. He knew that mystery creates suspense. And that's something we're going to get onto a little later in the episode of, you know, how, again, modern and progressive, that idea of creating mystery around yourself, having more intrigue, makes you more famous. And that's something that I feel he knew way before the rest. Creating, obviously, his own image uh, was part of his art. And his legacy is also within how he acted and that's one of the reasons why I see of Andy Warhol's genius it's that it's not just like people like to really minimize what he does a lot of the time by saying well he just took pictures and then did screen prints and it's like there was everything though he was he was a man of many many mediums and he never limited himself and his life was a medium and you know, we always hear people talk about the 15 minutes quote. And obviously that's his most famous quote that, you know, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes and everyone goes, oh, isn't it so funny that it's true? It's almost more true than you think because it's not just that people can get famous quickly. Even the way that they do so is Warholian. Being in charge of your own image, being your own artistic medium, your life being the subject of a performative art piece, which in a way we all do. We all are acting in this way online. Whether you have a, you know, quote unquote, a large audience or not, everyone is acting in some way. And that is inherently Warholian. And if you look at it from the point of influencers, like your life being possible content uh it being curated and being performative that essentially in a way is what an influencer is and the brand being you that is possibly the most warholian aspect of how we live now and the more it's one of those mind-bending things that the more i think of it the more freaked out i get because i also am like how you know Maybe it was like that then. I don't know. But I feel like fame and I feel like that large level of success and people having a large audience was so much more of an abstract idea and so much further away than it is now. They also talk about his TV show. So he had um, Andy Warhol TV and then that kind of later developed into 15 Minutes with Andy Warhol, which is an MTV show. And it really talked about how he was almost making MTV before MTV was made. He had this show that just, again, would I know would be a huge YouTube hit. He's sitting down with, like, 
uh, actresses and models and interviewing massive celebrities um, in his own way, but it's it's so nonchalant and it's so extremely casual. It's Andy Warhol's TV with supermodel Carol Alt, New York Ranger Ron Greshner, Senator Patrick Moynihan, English rock group Duran Duran, and photographer Horst. I'm Andy Warhol, and this is Mara Moynihan. And tonight on the show, we have model Carol Alt and the hockey star Ron Greshner. And she's so beautiful, and they got engaged. And we have Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And he came down here for lunch. And we have the rock and roll band Duran Duran. And they wear more makeup than you do, Mara. And we have the fashion photographer Horst. And he's one of my most favorite photographers. It made me think, which is obviously... It's a very obvious question now. You know, people say, what would he think of now? And obviously he'd fucking love it. Obviously, it's like the most insane thing for him to have completely predicted how we live our life and how we navigate fame now. But that show was like... I, I really recommend you go look at some of the clips on YouTube of that TV show and of his 15 minutes episodes. I think there's a few episodes up live on uh, YouTube. But I'm just going to use just the idea of Warhol because since seeing that um, TV show, I've been looking at things through this like Warholian lens of like and kind of freaking myself out about how we live life, right? Like how how accessible fame is and how... Um, what would the word be like how close it feels to everyone um, with virality and social media and I started to think obviously of the Kardashians then who were kind of in the news lately I mean when are they fucking not in the news and I'm gonna do a little recap because I did watch their show I did watch their show and I'm gonna give my thoughts because the Kardashians it's a weird thing right they're back obviously you know I'm sick of keeping up with them for ages, I used to kind of watch their show as like a little like comfort show, like it would kind of turn turn my brain off. I liked the kind of monotony of it. I don't know what it is the last year or two. Um, I finally feel like I'm at my Kardashian peak, but I do still like, you know, looking at them through this lens of a reflection of how we are as a society and what we prioritize, what we accept to be aspirational. And really, do we have a fucking choice at this point, whether we want to keep up with it or not? It feels like it's a forced thing that's pushed upon us. Even myself, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm watching that show. Little old me was there signing up to Disney Plus. Didn't even have a fucking account before this show came up and I fucking signed up for it. Just to see, and I don't even know why, but if there's one thing we all know, it's that they are good at promising you and delivering the same thing over and over and over and over again. Every fucking year of the Kardashians' last show was built upon this whole, oh my God, you know, we're finally going to get the realty about blah, blah, blah. And every time you watch it, it seems more and more contrived, more and more curated. And that really is their genius. Um, The intro I found very interesting. And I saw a lot of us talk about it over online and you know, I was trying to consume a little bit of that content, but not too much of it, like actually, you know, implanting thoughts into my brain. But 
I thought some of my standout moments of it were the defining of each other's characters, right? So whereas the old Kardashian show was very much like we are a unit, we are a family, um, here's us, the whole Kardashians lumped into one. This was very separate to me. So we obviously saw uh, Courtney and Travis in the family mode. That was a bit blah. Then we see Chloe building her house, blah, boring. Kendall playing motherfucking singing bowls out the back like her like desperate attempt to rebrand as some sort of holistic bitch is just gas um I I thought and also I was confused because I thought she had to sell that stunning house because she was being stalked or something but again is that just like us poking a hole in probably a Kardashian planted story most likely then you've got like the serious half of the Kardashians or I feel like they want to be taken the most seriously. You've got Chris who's working at Kylie headquarters, which again, very interesting to note that, you know, because we all know that Kylie is apparently taking over Kim money wise, um, especially Kylie Cosmetics. So we now see Chris very much aligning herself more with Kylie, uh, Kylie headquarters, while the rest of them are seen at their homes. Chris, Kylie and Kim are seen at their workplace and that's very much like solidifying the fact that Kim, Kylie and Chris are the workhorses of the family. They are who uh, financially keep the family afloat and as we all know within the Kardashians and with Kim's now famous uh, blunder for Vanity Fair about, you know, no one wants to work anymore. And now we see who she uh, uh, aligns with within the family. And it's quite obviously Kylie and Chris. Chris being the matriarch, Kim possibly being the one who will take over from Chris and then Kylie very, very uh soon after her footsteps. The sex tape was obviously brought up, which I thought was it was it was approached interestingly um chloe says that the sex tape being brought up in season one of the new show is an omen is a funny way to see how the family view kim's sex tape where you know you could argue is it still traumatic for her i'm gonna presume it is and like a horrible feeling especially your child finding that also to note, I do feel like that was not staged. There was a definite urgency in that room when she found that. And oh my God, like that was gold. It was gold for Hulu. But it does set the stage of like how the family see her sex tape because we all know and they know that we know that Kim's sex tape was really what launched, you know, a fleet of ships of a thousand Kardashians. And now they're kind of seeing this Hulu show as this like, you know, it's being branded as this like realer than real show, whereas it's the complete fucking same. Um, So are we going to get the same another 20 seasons, another generation uh, on Hulu, possibly? There was a huge focus on uh, the Kardashians always having an emergency too. There was a, it was at the end of the episode, I believe, kind of like, you know, next time on the Kardashians, they talk, we always have an emergency, we always have an emergency, and then it flashes through like multiple controversies, which we have seen as per their usual uh, format. These controversies play out in the press. Then six months later, when they're kind of cooled down, we see them on the show. No one really cares anymore and they never really go into too much detail. Um, But I thought that was an interesting way. Like, are they trying to have this weird reference to their controversies? But in their own Kardashian way, they are reshaping them from controversies to emergencies. I thought it was an interesting use of words. 
the Kravis thing is obviously going to play out to us. Um, a lot of people talking about how uh, Travis Barker, you know, he's a little bit more like, quote unquote, like the alternative guy. I think Travis Barker seems cool. But we have to remember, he, this is not his first time at the rodeo. He had Meet the Barkers. He had one of the earliest MTV reality shows. Very much forgotten because I don't believe the marriage lasted much longer. Um, but we shouldn't forget that Travis has his own history at reality TV. And I think that we're going to see that play out with the engagement and how he navigates that. Um, but it's interesting to see another A-list male being brought into the mix. Uh, obviously, we had Kanye uh, before who famously really stayed clear of the TV show up until the last two seasons or so. But uh, now we've got Travis and we're, it's going to be interesting to see how he moves within the whole family. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Relatability to me was definitely their biggest goal here. Uh, lots of talking to camera, lots of breaking the fourth wall, and they... I believe they started to do this in the last few seasons every now and then they would mention like the producers or filming you know especially when Courtney had her famous like breakdown about how she wants to quit the show etc etc um but I do feel like this time they're they're really taking the whole talking to camera as an attempt to like amp up like relatability and authenticity Kim turned to uh which is funny because it ended up Honestly, being even more contrived. Because uh, Kim turns the camera at one point and is like picking up chicken wings and is like, usually I'm vegan, like 90% of the time, but not today. And although that's her way of trying to be like overly authentic, it just came across as like, so dare I say pick me or, you know, oh, you normal people will think I'm great because I'm eating like, you know, fried chicken like you guys. Just very strange, but definitely their their idea of authenticity. It's funny to see them dabble in this relatability and authenticity and, you know, trying to be realer than real because it's a family really who created this whole aspirational trend, right? They created the aspirational influencer. Uh, they now see the power in authenticity, and, you know, Kylie recently went on this spiel about like body positivity and not feeling her best after her second baby. Uh, so it is entertaining and interesting to see them push the authentic, relatable queen narrative. Especially if you look at any of the press around this show, they're really talking about that this is the real us. Like, 
they also have been asked like so was the Kardashians not real then keeping up and they're like no 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 that was real but this this is like everything is shattering even the promo I believe had like glass shattering around them like there was these glass walls up around them um so that's obviously their that's their line that's what they're pushing Miss MJ Corey, uh, that a lot of you may know as Kardashian Colloquium, has landed a Vogue article, which I'm so happy for her. Uh, she has worked so hard and does definitely, as uh, as most people know, I'm sure, some of, if not, I think, the best uh, critique on the Kardashians. She wrote an amazing piece for Vogue. I'll link it below. Um, but three of her standouts, she lists are number one the high scale product placement um so she makes the argument that uh, this new kardashians seems a little bit more like a documentary rather than the fly on the wall reality tv that was keeping up with um and chris is always referencing the cameras that surround them as i said they're breaking that fourth wall more and more but again i really feel it's their way of trying to push this whole we actually work narrative and she mentions here that uh, a shift to a more distant approach is better suited to the inner workings of a business system rather than surveying a family's interpersonal dynamics. So they're definitely trying to set themselves up. I agree with MJ here as this more like um, almost like the Kardashian conglomerate. And here's how it works behind the scenes rather than like a deep dive into our personal dramas because we knew we were never getting the real reaction. Uh, Kylie's baby so she's keeping the gender a secret so far and uh, MJ notes about Kim having this uh, focus on like a really gendered old wives tale saying that I think it's a boy because you're prettier lot this time the girls take all the beauty to give to themselves but boys know what's up and they let you be prettier so uh MJ kind of makes this idea that it's almost foreshadowing like, you know, the younger daughter taking something from the mother, possibly Kim stepping into Chris's shoes soon and then Kylie from her, etc, etc. This whole like matriarch family. I then came across a TikTok from, uh, and I'm sure a lot of you guys listen to their podcast, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Um, one of the hosts made a really, really interesting take on uh, how the Kardashians present their life versus how they reflect on their life and uh, what Chris Kardashian said in her memoir about this. I have my theory about why the Kardashians are so successful based on this clip from Chloe's recent interview where she talks about Tristan Thompson. I wasn't able to stitch it, but I screenshotted like the important part. Basically, she was asked, why did you take Tristan back? And Chloe is really proud of herself because she was like, even though he cheated on me when I was pregnant, I was still able to have him in the delivery room. And then she says, so when True looks back at those home videos, those videos are going to be as pure and perfect as I was able to make them. And this really struck me because I read Kris Jenner's memoir and it really resonated with something Kris Jenner said about motherhood. When Chris talks about her early days with Robert Kardashian, when she just had Courtney and Kim, she says everything was picture perfect. I made breakfast for the babies. I played tennis with my friends. I met my friends for lunch. I went shopping for the most adorable clothes for our two girls who are always perfectly groomed with big bows in their hair. And then when she talked about what a great wife and mother she is, she goes on to say, if you open my refrigerator door, everything in, was pristine and perfect. And then down here, I find such joy in buying new things for my home, decorating and dressing my kids. And there's like a lot of talk about what makes the Kardashians so successful. Like obviously there's tons of families who would go on a reality show, but none of them seem to break out the way the Kardashians have been able to. And I think it's because of these values. I think in the Kardashian household, being a good mom is making things look beautiful. Like being a good mom is curating beautiful memories. 
which is very different than being like a good mom is someone who creates a safe home. A good mom is someone who creates a place where you can learn and explore and be yourself. They put a huge emphasis on being like a good mom is somebody who creates a photo so that later you can look back and remember how cool it looked in the photo. They have a very aesthetic driven idea of what a good mom is. A good mom is someone who makes everything look good and then you can remember it. And those values perfectly align with like our Instagram consumer culture. Like what it takes to be a good influencer is somebody who's always taking photos, who's always making everything look beautiful. And I think for the Kardashians, they like perfectly dovetail because to them, to be good people is to be a good mom, which is to make a beautiful photo, which is then something that perfectly makes money. And I think for most people, like what it takes to be an influencer is different than what it takes to be a good person. But for the Kardashians, it's like one and the same. And that's why they are all so innately good at it. And they're able to just like keep extending beyond and creating this bigger empire with eventually a whole group of grandchildren who will also pick take a perfect photo and then like be like, I'm a good mom and a great businesswoman. Anyway, that's all I had to say. I just think it's very interesting that all of these women seem to think being a good mom is being picture perfect. How Warholian is that? And also a completely correct point. Like I even noticed it uh, today. No, it was yesterday, Easter Sunday, right? You've got Kim on Instagram, if you missed it, showing this lavish Easter uh, prep uh, of a party and there's so much product everywhere. There's a fucking massive chocolate egg for every single person there. And you see that being reflected there, that it's it's this curating of memories to them, which is so important. And, you know, that goes into all of these lavish parties that they have it even goes into the old show because they talk about it they reference it in keeping up that oh it's and it's so good that we can look back on these memories whereas they actually know that the show is curated and the show is like scripted to a degree um even to the point that like a lot of their drama allegedly could be scripted a lot of their drama is scripted for the shows so that it can play out for the show but they will look back at that as memories they see them as real and they see it as part of them and in a way it is because their entire life is being curated and presented as content for consumption but then they also have this weird family dynamic where they're looking back on memories that are they really memories or are they just like photo shoots There was even more little, like, I mean, dare I say Easter eggs throughout the first episode that, like, really relayed on this whole uh, importance of control over their own image. Kim notes at one point that her and Kanye, like, their thing is her appearance and how she presents herself. Like, what a strange thing to bond with your, you know, some people could argue cellmate or at least father of your four children, ex-husband, whatever the fuck it is. Strange, what a strange thing to bond over. Uh, the, the curation of you and your life and your appearance and your celebrity. Because Kanye obviously did curate her celebrity. He, as in his own words, made them cool. Who else is Kanye a huge fan of? Andy Warhol. He has called himself today's Andy Warhol. I'm standing up and I'm telling you I am Warhol. And he is. Look at Andy Warhol with Edie Sedgwick. And look at our Andy Warhol with his idea of the superstar, right? He would pick these girls up if they're it girls, if they're musicians, artists, poets, and put them in his movie and call them a superstar. They are a superstar. And they were a superstar because he said so. Kanye did the same thing with Kim Kardashian. Kanye knew Kim Kardashian, he probably saw potential in her and her family and 
curated her to what he liked and she was a willing participant a lot of people take her agency out of it but when you really look at it in that way she openly says that is what their thing is it has always been our thing she says um which again inherently warholian and super super interesting to look at um lastly before i move on to my very last segment here i just have to note kim and chloe had really strange beauty filters on in their like interviews or talking heads or whatever you want to call them. MJ, Corey did a really good analysis on uh, the talking heads and the interviews and saying that they have kind of amped up this personality aspect, which goes into the re- relatability stuff that I was talking about earlier. They're really honing in on like all their, all of their personalities just seem like dialed up to 10 like Kendall's being all like jokey and funny and Kim as I said doing this whole like I eat fried chicken too guys but it actually comes across almost like a sitcom to me um but there are some interviews which are really polished slightly closer to I was gonna say to the old interview style but they're really not close to the old interview style they're much closer to a real housewives of Beverly Hills moment where they're in like full fucking drag and Chloe has this It fully is like they were given um, free reign on what filter they wanted to use, on what beauty filter. Because it's not even just a filter. It's fully like Chloe's jaw is smushed in, like how she does on her face tune. So I find it mad because that definitely didn't exist to that extreme on the old E! show, from what I could tell. They always looked pretty much the same. They looked airbrushed and stuff, but it wasn't anything to the point where I was like her face looks fucking different like one scene went from Chloe talking about Scott with the filter on and then it it like cut to her talking to Scott on the show and she looked completely fucking different same with Kim there was like not a fucking hair at a place as usual but like her face was just so blurred they both look like their Instagram version of themselves which I thought was an interesting choice on their behalf to even decide to use that or to even have two different styles of interview so speaking of uh real housewives the new real housewives of beverly hills trailer dropped um and if anyone watches it you will know that real housewives have just like nailed the whole villain archetype it is a rite of passage within real housewives that you will come in on your first season and people will either love you or hate you usually they'll hate you by being like she's crap she's like not worthy of a spot on real housewives rarely would a housewife really cause that cause that much commotion in their first season um like drama wise but on the last season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Kathy Hilton came in. Uh, everyone loved her. Fan favorite completely. New trailer drops. Guess who's the villain this season? Kathy motherfucking Hilton. It happens every fucking time. Um, and as I said, it's that rite of passage. But for me, I, I love a villain. I, I've always loved a villain. I love Ursula. Love the Wicked Witch. I mean, I think that villains in shows are as not, if not more important than the hero because if anything it highlights what the hero is doing well um it's interesting it's it's a funny one within like real housewives though because none of them are really the hero they all want to be more superior rather than a hero they're not heroic because they're always doing it for their own self-preservation um but this had me thinking you know i was thinking of the the need of villains and i was thinking about online villains and then I was listening to Caroline Calloway went on the Forbidden Fruits podcast with Julia Fox and Nikki Takish. And she is a quintessential 
probably like a quintessential online villain, I think, Caroline Calloway. Um, even though a lot of people I do think love to hate her and hate to love her, I I don't think it's as polarizing, but I don't think online I don't think being online you can ever just be like a complete villain. You know, I think you always have to have this. It's more like this, like people are drawn to the chaos. People are drawn to the toxicity and the drama, of course. And oftentimes people present themselves um, one way or the other. A lot of influencers would choose to present themselves either in one box or the other. And you're either the perfect you're either like Kim Kardashian who's like presents herself as perfect or you're Caroline Calloway and you're like here are my flaws and um she's an extreme extreme on the on the binary of like extremely chaotic and has scammed people but she's very endearing in the same degree anyway on the podcast she was talking about her recent drama with her apartment right um if you don't know she left her apartment basically fucked completely in bits and now her landlord company are suing her for damages and for back rent and she was kind of explaining this in a really roundabout and bad way uh she was really good at not answering any of their questions (laughs) i would i'd suggest you just go listen to the episode because it's entertaining to say the least I really appreciated Nikki Takish really pressing her on some stuff and Caroline Calloway getting like audibly fucking annoyed, which was awkward as fuck, but in an entertaining way. But she used a term to describe how she lives online and how she makes money online that I thought, again, just to wrap this up, is so Warholian. And that was the theatre of the internet. And I have never really thought about the internet that way before. The internet right now is exactly that. It is theatre. It is, there are audiences, there are performers. However, in a way, we're all both. We're all both the audience and the performer. Whether you have one follower or like, you know, 100,000 or 1 million followers, you have a platform. You are all in some degree performing to another because that is essentially what like the likes of Instagram is uh you are presenting a very curated image of yourself or your life for whoever to look at be it your peers or be it your like audience or your customers so to speak or like followers I guess and it really made me just think about like how how we are presenting and navigating life via the internet is just completely bleeding through to reality um again that loops back to Warhol right being masters of our own reality and image on paper sounds great however possibly completely detrimental to our brain chemistry and to really circle back to what I spoke about at the beginning when we were really talking about Warhol about you know people say oh he would have loved it now and I'm like is would he is it part of his vision for the future where we like blur the lines between reality and performance so fucking much that they no longer even have like strict boundaries anymore no one knows what is what no one knows what's performance and reality there can be real realistic performance and there can be performative reality like we see on the kardashians i then started going down (laughs) this fucking spiraling uh my head was just spiraling at this point and i started thinking of baudrillard's 
proposition of hyper-reality, okay? So hyper-reality, I'm going to read the definition for you all because I needed to read the definition to make sure that what I was thinking of was exactly what I was talking about. It captures the inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. And a lot of times I see this being spoken about, about like AI or um, more kind of robotic or futuristic or almost scientific um, methods of like simulating reality, right? And you hear about it a lot in the simulation theory as well. But then I started thinking about it in more of a media sense. And I'm definitely, I mean, obviously Baudrillard talks about media all the time, but this was just my own little spiral. I'm thinking of it in the sense of, of social media, right? Like, can we differentiate it anymore? Because social media is a simulation of reality in its essence. It is, not only does it uh, represent socializing, but it also is this simulation of our actual lives. It's a simulation of how we want to look. It's a simulation of how we want to think. It really has every single aspect of like the human experience to a degree or how we at least want to be seen and how we interact with others. Adam Curtis is someone who actually does a lot of really interesting uh, critique or commentary on this space as well. And he has a really amazing documentary called Hypernormalization. Uh, I know all the hypers today. And hypernormalization always has me thinking about this whole theater of the internet, okay? Theater, again, I think being a really interesting part of that. Hypernormalization is based on a book by an anthropologist who wrote, his name escapes me. What is his name? It is, oh, sorry, Alexei Yurchak, okay? And he was a, an anthropology, anthropology professor. He spoke about the fall and life of uh, people in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. And it was about how people of that time knew that it was failing, knew that it was fake, knew that what they were being told was fake. However, they couldn't really understand or begin to imagine a life beyond what they were currently experiencing, right? So they were just like, um, well, I guess we'll just go along with it. And that like delusion of theirs, of it being fine and like the fakeness being presented as reality became a self-fulfilling prophecy and the fakeness was accepted by everyone as real. And that's what your check is called hypernormalization. And Adam Curtis made an amazing TV show, documentary, I don't know what you would call, I guess, documentary about that. The two terms, hyper-reality, hyper-normalization, that to me is really what's going on with social media, right? Because we not, on one hand, we cannot any longer differentiate between the simulation of reality and actual reality. Even though we are constantly told, think of it like in like Soviet uh, times, like the, the government are telling them, you know, Russia is very strong. The US or is amazing. And we know it's not though, which is weird. And online we have, we are participating in and we have influencers or celebrities presenting these like perfect idealizations of their life or their personality or their looks to us. 
Then we also have them breaking the fourth wall in this Kardashian way of being like, oh guys, like, don't worry, like Instagram's just a highlight reel or, you know, body positive uh, messaging actually wrapped up in some sort of like selling authenticity, again, very Kardashian um, or they're following in those footsteps actually at the moment, which is interesting. But, you know, we've got influencers posting like, don't worry guys, remember, remember, it's a, it's a highlight reel. And we know this, but we still can't really get to the point of completely separating life online and life in real life and that doesn't mean that we're like only experiencing things through our phone I can hear some people are going like oh well maybe you can't but I can but can you really I, I'd love a, a real like truth serum honest answer to that I think at times you can you can wave in and out of it but it's always there it's always present this idea this this performative element of everything is always there and that's whether you're just posting a picture of your lunch for your fucking mom and dad to see that's still performative baby like it's still a performance in and of itself because it's contrived it is conceptual you are thinking of doing it you take the picture you post the picture and you want the reaction the entire thing is part of the theater of the internet but now because we literally can't imagine a world without social media like, I can't imagine it. How, we, how do we ever go back from this? We are now propping it up as real. We're like, okay, even though we know it's not real, we can't really imagine a life without it. So therefore it is real. Like, because we put so much importance into it, it is essentially real and tangible. And now we're experiencing that hyper-normalization of it. To end the episode off, um kind of on this whole idea again another TikTok that I'm going to play for you that I thought made such an interesting point about nuance and social media polarization Um, and I'll leave it with you and you can let me know uh, what you think about it. So today I was going down an internet rabbit hole because I thought that I was a workaholic and I was trying to figure out if I'm addicted to working. And I realized that this is not the best angle, but I'm going to keep it here. But anyways, I realized that everything on the internet is sold as like every narrative on the internet lacks nuance. The way that we use language to define ourselves like within the online world is full of complete opposites. So cancel culture is like kind of a perfect example. When someone does something wrong, they're like, quote unquote, canceled. And that we know that that isn't really true because people get canceled and then they come right back a week later. But the narrative that we're sold is that they're canceled and they're completely bad and they could never come back. It's kind of similar to how if you look in Instagram comments, all of the comments are super, super intense and like on one end of the spectrum or the other. So comments like you're perfect or this comment, you look incredible, Emma, you're freaking stunning. Sis, you snapped, ate, took the whole plate. Obviously, these comments are positive, but it kind of feeds into this online narrative where everything has to be really, really polarizing to attract any attention. Everything has to be either super, super outrageously good or horrendously bad. Two days ago, Kim wore this outfit and immediately I went and texted my friend and I said, but who told Kim to wear this today? And he said, skeet. And then I realized after that 
Kim wearing this outfit and then me screenshotting it and texting it to someone was exactly what she wanted. She wanted to be polarizing and she knew that the outfit was ugly and that it would get a lot of attention online. And I did this and then I reshared this screenshot to my Instagram story. It feels like the way that we define our lives online has shifted and now rewired the way I define myself in my head. So now if I have a tiny little problem, it's immediately you are going to die. And then I can go look on Google and have 30,000 reasons that I know I'm going to die and I'm probably fine. Or if I'm working too much, I immediately think I'm a workaholic. I think the narratives that work well to sell us beauty products and courses and books are the narratives that kind of tell us that we are shit without that thing. Kim Kardashian isn't going to sell skims by telling women that their bodies are beautiful already. She's going to show them an extremely perfected plastic body and then put skims on. And then she's going to say that her body comes from the skims. But that lacks a ton of nuance. And I feel like I'm losing nuance in my life, if that makes sense. Okay, guys, that is it for this month's off-script hot take. If you enjoyed it, please rate me five stars. I'd love to hear what you think about all the topics I discussed today over on Instagram. It's at redroom.pod or I'm on TikTok, redroompod. You know where to follow me. Anyway, I'll talk to you all soon. And I'll talk to you all actually in about two weeks for the next free episode. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.